The Conversationalist is a podcast about the history of science from the 19th century to today, brought to you by the Constructing Scientific Communities Project. Okay, let's get this party started. In the 19th century, many scientific institutions hosted what were known as conversazione, evening gatherings to showcase science and the arts. These events ranged from the outrageously raucous to the excruciatingly boring, but they were united in bringing together experts and amateurs, professional scientists, and the general public for lectures, displays, performances, and, of course, conversation. In this podcast, we invite you to join our version of these classic Victorian affairs, our very own cocktail party with experts on the history of science. Conversazione were about information, but they were also very much about entertainment. So we ask our guests in each episode to regale us with a story about the history of science that will captivate us for a drink or two. At the end of the episode, we'll head over to the bar to chat with our bartenders, who will share a recipe, a story, or maybe a bit of history about the food and drink that so often accompany a good conversation. Well, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves. I'm Kira Allman, and I'm the Media and Communications Officer for the Constructing Scientific Communities Project. So let's start with Don. Don, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. I'm Don Opitz. I'm associate professor at DePaul University, and I do history of science, uh, primarily 19th century, uh, gender and uh, class, and um, scientific work within private spaces. Great. And Barris? Hi, pleased to meet you. Uh, I'm uh, Barris Charnley, and I'm uh, working here at Oxford, uh, also on the, the ConSciCom project, and looking at amateur and professional modes of research in the 19th century. Wonderful. Well, thanks to you both for joining me today. We're doing something a little bit experimental with today's conversation. I'm sitting here in Oxford with Barris, and we've got Don calling in from the United States. So we'll try to take the pace of the conversation maybe a little bit more slowly to account for any lag time there. And then just please bear with the quality of Don's audio. Uh, it's never as good as having him right in the room with us, but it's still pretty good. So uh, Don, I hope you have a drink ready over there on the other side of this computer screen because before we get started I'm just going to welcome you both again and say cheers 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 okay so Don tell us what we will be talking about today uh, thanks Kara so I, I think that uh, what we want to talk about today is uh, you know basically looking at uh, practices of science that span different kinds of spaces, um, especially uh, with uh, private and public uh, spaces in mind, and especially uh, how science might have looked historically um, with, within domestic spaces. Um, so homes and um, stately mansions, um, cottages, and also uh, domestic kind of spaces that may have appeared um, in relationship to other new kinds of institutions, um, such as the uh, museum, the Natural History Museum, and even uh, research institutes that, that might have been um, designed with uh, domestic space in mind. That sounds great. Um, 
I think that when a lot of people think about science, they probably have in mind a laboratory or an institutional setting of some kind. So um, would you maybe like to get us started, Don, talking about what we mean when we, we talk about domestic science or at-home science? What, what, are we, what kinds of non-institutional spaces are we talking about here? Uh, great question, Kira. And, you know, so I, I think when people hear the phrase domestic science uh, nowadays, um, you know, we really think about home economics or a, a kind of uh, science education that is meant to um, have students learn about, uh, you know, science in a way that as it relates to keeping up a home, uh, as it relates to cooking, as it relates to gardening and horticulture, um, preparing foodstuffs, um, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, thinking historically, um, it, and, and, and actually science nowadays tends to be done uh, within uh, dedicated institutional spaces, um, within universities, uh, government uh, laboratories, um, and it it's, seems quite unusual, at least to the popular perception, that science may actually happen in um, you know, places that we might not imagine that are more private, domestic-based uh, settings, um, such as people's attics and basements, uh, garages, um, you know, gardens in the backyard. Um, and it's that kind of uh, practice of science that especially interests me um, and was something that was much more common um, if we look back historically um, earlier than the 20th century. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, my, my area of focus is in, in the 19th century. You know, when we think of uh, domestic science nowadays, um, it's really that sort of image of the gentleman uh, working at home. Um, you know, the kind of Frankenstein image um, mm -hmm. where Frankenstein was um, in his private estate, um, moldering away in the attic, uh, creating life out of uh, <laughs> body parts. <laughs> um, you know, it's a kind of romantic uh, literary view of um, sort of, you know, the, the private practice of science before it became an institutionalized uh, activity. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that romantic view, because I think that there is kind of this narrative of domestic science being um, appealing in some sense, that the idea of the, the genius scientist making some kind of incredible scientific discovery in the ordinariness of his or her everyday life, there's something narratively compelling about that. We, we like that story, don't we? Yeah, yeah, we really do. And it's something that, you know, we, we grow up, um, you know, reading about. And it's the kind of narratives that we get, um, you know, both both within our uh, um, the books that we read as, as uh, children, but also what we see on television um, and in, in the movies. Yeah, but no, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's really this romantic image of the genius. And it, it actually shapes, you know, in, in my view, um, how we think about the history of science on um, this sort of a genius history that focuses on uh, these prominent uh, scientists like uh, Isaac Newton, um, Albert Einstein, without any real attention to, um, you know, the, the conditions of their research and how they were individuals within social settings and, and designated spaces um, and, and how their work actually played out. 
In the 19th century, we see this important transition from uh, the sort of amateur scientists to the professionalization of science. Um, so what did science in domestic spaces or non-institutional spaces look like before the 19th century? And then what was happening in the 19th century? You know, was science happening in the pub beforehand? Where was it? So, I mean, the, the interesting thing is uh, how unexpected these places and sites of science can be uh, when one starts to get really into the, the details of where people were practicing and collaborating. Um, and of course, um, someone like Anne Secord has done uh, a lot of work on exactly how botanists would gather in pubs together, which were at the time quite dangerous places for public meetings in that there was access to alcohol uh, to conduct their botanizing. Um, and in some ways, those pubs could become almost like domestic spaces, as codes of conduct from domestic spaces could be transferred into these more public settings. And that's what I really mean about some surprising configurations. So there you have what looks ostensibly like a public space, uh, a pub, uh, in which some of the mores of private interaction uh, were imposed uh, in order to allow botanists to communicate and collaborate with each other. So th the problem, as ever, with history is that it, it tends to make things very much more complicated. So one can think about someone like uh, Tico Brahe uh, working um, in what looks like a workshop uh, which strikes me as remarkably contemporary. He had a whole gang of technicians and workers around him producing objects and artifacts to be used in his research. Um, and then to flip that story somewhat the other way, um, it's very true that even in the most modern of laboratories in the 20th century, one still finds all of the activities of domestic life. So scientists will be cooking, they will be laughing, listening to music, falling in love with each other, making friendships, and doing those things which we normally take to be quite private activities in a laboratory space. Um, and so that's what really interests me, the um, unusual configurations of public and private space and the different practices that could c occur in these spaces and in some ways change the nature of those spaces in view of the way that they were conducted. Um, historians generally agree that there is a massive change that occurs within the 19th century. Um, and it's not just with respect to science, but it's within uh, culture more generally. Um, so there's this uh, phenomenon known as the uh, separation of, of private and public life, um, which uh, coincides with the rise of the middle class. And um, there's sort of a designation of certain public activities as opposed to private activities. And, you know, what I might term as the domestication of private life um, in a way that really creates sort of uh, the home as a private domestic space meant for intimate affairs, um, public space as a space for uh, professional and po uh, political affairs, um, which is a little bit different from uh, the time before, um, you know, sort of the age of the, the French Salon, you know, which would be happen in these uh, well-to-do uh, uh, domestic spaces, and it was all about um, organizing to exchange ideas, but also to uh, strategize uh, politically. Um, 
you know, in the 19th century, science itself becomes um, institutionalized. Um, there's departments of biology and chemistry and physics that are created within the universities. And with that, you get the creation of academic uh, laboratories. Um, and there's a way in which uh, it's known that science moves outside of the home um, into these other newly uh, uh, built spaces. Um, and the social organization of science shifts in the process. Um, and one of the things that I've become very interested in is uh, how that affects gender, gender uh, participation in the sciences. Um, so there's a way in which uh, women, uh, the female members of families um, who had very uh, active roles in carrying out scientific work uh, collaboratively uh, with uh, men of science, um, are now sort of pushed out of the more uh, designated spaces that are in public settings. Uh, women are progressively excluded um, from sort of the professional spaces of science. And so domestic spaces for science then offer women new opportunities to participate? Well, uh, that's an interesting point. Um, so I, I think the standard canon is that you know, actually, no, uh, what happens is science moves outside of the home. And what that means is that women uh, have fewer opportunities to contribute to uh, sort, sort of uh, serious scientific research. Um, but um, what, what I think is um, not um, as well acknowledged is how there's traditions of domestic research that continue alongside the sort of professionalization of science within new spaces. Um, and uh, women uh, practitioners um, also move within these new spaces um, to contribute to the sciences and, um, you know, not always in the same, uh, you know, full uh, ways as, uh, you know, those that are holding uh, university positions and, and, you know, paid, paid uh, positions within science. Um, but there's a way in which they, uh, they participate in new ways. So I'd be really interested, Don, to hear your thoughts on the extent to which the exclusion of women uh, from our conceptions of scientific practice should be historicized. Um, so I'm thinking of uh, John Lindley, who was um, a leading figure in the Royal Horticultural Society, uh, saying in the middle of the 19th century, um, the, the only way we're going to get people to take botanists seriously is if we get all of the women out of the society. It's only until we start excluding women that we're going to be taken seriously um, to have this social status as something more than natural historians. And, and that suggests that in an earlier period, it was quite possible for women to collaborate in botany. Uh, and the, the male scientists kind of had to think about being exclusionary uh, and make an active decision uh, from a, a prior situation in which there was much more participation or participation was less fraught. Your example, uh, Barris, of uh, John Lindley, of course, happened within a very uh, specific historical context. Um, it's a time when uh, we have this outflowing of uh, popular science literature that was um, written by and written for uh, women. Um, so you get this phenomenon of botany for ladies. Um, and I, I wonder to what extent uh, John Lindley's uh, statement about excluding women from uh, this serious scientific learned society um, was really a reaction to this um, 
popularization phenomenon that, that is happening right during his, his time. The, the way it shifts is when you have uh, women that are wanting to pursue higher education and, you know, and perhaps uh, uh, enter careers as uh, scientists, um, that now all of a sudden this, this question of recognition becomes, um, you know, a real issue. So as science is professionalizing, um, what, what kinds of scientific endeavors continue to take place in domestic spaces? Is there kind of a bifurcation where you get sort of more marginalized subjects that are actually getting their start in domestic spaces during this time? Or what kind of science is happening? I, I think that's precisely right. So um, where there's sort of new fields of uh, scientific research uh, emerging, and genetics was one of those fields. Um, so as we know, um, genetics wasn't actually uh, known as genetics until around 1900, 1901. I think William Bateson coined the term in, in 1905. And, um, you know, it was really studies of heredity and variation. And um, a lot of that research was occurring um, on farms, um, you know, so it was really tied to um, agricultural interests. Um, at the same time, um, within uh, the, the Cambridge Academic Laboratories, uh, you have um, studies of embryology going on and, um, you know, some uh, cytology and um, microscopic kind of work. Um, but the details of uh, genetics um, really didn't uh, come come into play until the early uh, um, uh, 20th century. Um, William Bateson was unusual in that um, he really believed that to get a handle on uh, genetic laws, um, you had to do uh, large-scale uh, comparative studies of uh, chickens and mice and butterflies and um, peas and, you know, the, the kind of uh, um, research that um, traditionally happened um, within, uh, you know, domestic spaces and farms and whatnot. Um, and it was the kind of research that the university wasn't really interested in at the time that Bateson was proposing this. Um, so by default, uh, in order for him to continue on that uh, line of research, um, he did have to assemble teams of uh, volunteer workers. Um, he was also very uh, enterprising and recruiting uh, people from outside of Cambridge um, to do this kind of work within their homes um, and send results of their observations uh, back uh, to him. Um, the kind of style of research that uh, Charles Darwin, in fact, did um, in his work um, on uh, you know, various aspects of, of evolution. Um, Bateson, of course, uh, drew upon his own family members, including Beatrice. Um, and then there were other uh, students. Um, so this was the time that uh, women's education was taking off within uh, the universities. And there were two uh, women's colleges uh, that were founded in Cambridge, uh, Newnham College and Girton College. And uh, those uh, female students at those colleges uh, did contribute to uh, Bateson's uh, work. Um, and so there were various gardens, uh, both in Cambridge and private gardens, including at Bateson's own house, uh, that were used as sites for this, these kinds of observational studies. 
in domestic science, do you do we see a range of people participating in these kinds of pursuits, or is this sort of the purview of the wealthy, or did people from the working classes and the middle classes also participate? So I actually I think it's all over um, all over the uh, map. You know, when it comes to uh, participation in domestic science, um, it is happening, of course. Um, you know, within the aristocracy. Um, and that's been um, sort of how I got into this topic by looking at um, aristocrats such as the British physicist, uh, uh, Lord Rayleigh. Um, but there's a way in which, you know, as the middle class um, comes comes into being um, and expands, um, there's, a way, there's a way in which, um, you know, this becomes, um, there's, there's a popularization of science that's happening that really engages the middle class. Um, there's a, an artisan tradition um, within uh, the practice of natural history, and um, I would also add astronomy and entomology. Um, and um, these traditions, um, you know, inter interact in interesting ways. Um, I, I don't think that they're random ways. I think that there's some... Uh, patterns that, that can be um, traced. Hmm. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I would agree that um, in some ways social structures are reinforced through science, and so you have the appearance of learned royal societies, which often have a royal charter, um, learned societies of science, which often have a royal charter. Um, at the same time, it's very often um, people of a lower social status who are in the closest proximity to the phenomena of interest. Um, so it's people who can go out on a Sunday and collect plants um, and gain a really deep understanding of the plants in their quite specific local area, um, who then find themselves in a position, as it were, to trade uh, with the gentleman or gentlewoman of science. Um, trading their specimens of a, a particular plant or a particular insect, and so in some ways circumventing class structures in being able to communicate and exchange uh, well above their class, as it were. Interesting. So as domestic science and institutional science evolved in parallel, do we see something like domestic spaces being the incubators of ideas that then leap into institutional spaces. So there must be some difference, right? Otherwise we would just be talking about science and science. The, the domestic science and the institutional, the institutional and domestic parts of those constructions should be doing some work for us. Um, or perhaps they're not doing any work for us. And the interesting thing is it's the same type of science occurring in different sites. And I don't think that's the case. I think there's a relationship which is at times antagonistic, um, which is about institutional science replacing work which was done in domestic settings as it becomes professionalized. And your, your point about the aims of science um, is incredibly well taken. Um, so on one glass, at the beginning of the 20th century, funding becomes available for the types of open-ended questions which don't seem to have uh, an immediate economic significance for the, the benefit of the nation. Um, and this is described afterwards in retrospect as the, the beginnings of pure science, that um, 
freedom to inquire without being concerned about the economic outputs of what one does. Um, and that would suggest that in that early part of the 20th century, those questions about economic benefit were being addressed in the domestic space. Um, and so with genetics, you have a little bit of evidence there of an applied science that was developed in the domestic space. Um, I think what's interesting is that coming to the other side of the 20th century, actually scientists now who are establishing hack spaces, um, new working open laboratories, are turning away from the institution as a site for open-ended inquiry and moving back into homemade makeshift laboratories in their houses as places where they perceive themselves to have more freedom in the research they conduct. Yeah, this was actually kind of in the back of my mind as well. Uh, the idea of domestic spaces or non-institutional spaces writ large as in incubators of sorts, because we see maybe a parallel here um, in contemporary science, these uh, hacker spaces and these startup-oriented scientific endeavors that are actually stepping outside the institutional setting to achieve some kind of additional intellectual or financial freedom. So basically, domestic science has never gone away. I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right as well. I mean, uh, these histories in some cases run parallel to each other, in some cases interact and play off of each other, in some cases look to answer different types of questions in different types of ways, um, in other cases borrow methodologies, styles of working, and in fact reagents from each other. Um, so very often uh, every laboratory I've um, had the chance to talk to the, the kind of more senior members of um, I've discovered there'll be an apocryphal story of the scientist who took his materials home. Um, and it's normally kind of amusing, semi-scandalous and horrific that the materials taken home are radioactive or genetically modified mutants and so on. <laughs> what benefit can we get uh, as academics, as historians of science, and um, as, a, as societies from conceptualizing science as something that takes place in a, uh, a wide range of places? I mean, so for me it's that um, we deal and trade in our society generally in quite crude stereotypes, cliches, uh, archetypal images. And so I, I think that um, in some senses, scientists, the scientific community, can be quite afraid of historical work which serves to undermine those cliches. Um, so one particular cliche is that scientists are the expert. Uh, you know, they're the, the prime A first case example of what an expert is. Um, and we shouldn't be doing historical work which might undermine that notion of expertise because that can work against the, the role of the scientist in society at this particular moment in time especially. Um, so I would argue that we should not be afraid of that work and when one gets into the details of actually the huge range of places 
um, in which science could be practiced and the ways in which science could be practiced in those places and the people who could practice science in those ways in those places historically. Actually, we end up with a very much richer picture of what science could potentially be. Um, so my argument would be that there's a payoff in this descriptive work, in being more detailed, in not letting ourselves go with a crude caricature and holding ourselves to account in accurately characterizing these heterogeneous practices. And, and that payoff is that it allows us to liberate our minds and imaginations about what science could be in the future. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, and I, I think what I would add is um, there's a way in which um, the stereotypes that we have of science um, tend to make it as something other um, and something special. Well, science is special, of course, um, but in a way that makes it less accessible, um, you know, as other fields. And I think that, you know, the risk there is um, when we don't familiarize uh, science in all of the ways it um, presents itself, its practice, the places where it happens, and who who's participating, and, 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 and how that has um, uh, played out historically. Um, there's a way in which we're, um, you know, making science um, less accessible to a, a broader audience, um, a broader set of participants, um, you know, and I'm thinking within specific disciplines of, uh, you know, female, females and, um, um, you know, di diverse uh, communities. Um, so, you know, by presenting a historically um, robust um, picture about how science has been practiced in domestic um, settings and private spaces and public spaces and pubs and gardens um, and museums um, and, of course, as well as in the academy. Um, it's really showing that um, science, like other cultural activities, um, you know, has this uh, very uh, varied and, um, you know, rich uh, heritage, um, which hopefully will demystify it as something that is, um, you know, other. And I guess on that note, I'll just thank both of you, Barris and Don, for joining me in this podcast episode. It's been a real pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thanks, Kara. Thank you, Kara. It was um, very pleasurable. Okay, I think it's time to head over to the bar. Our bartenders in this episode are Corey and Tom from the Oxford Artisan Distillery, and I'll just let them introduce themselves for you in case you haven't heard them on a previous episode before. Hello, I'm Tom Nicholson. I'm the founder of the Oxford Artisan Distillery, uh, which is Toad. Hi, this is Corey. I'm from the Toad Distillery, and I'm a distiller. So Corey and Tom, what were the popular cocktails of the 19th century, and do we see any of those carrying over to today? Well, I would say this is the time when you started to see popular cocktails at all. You know, before this, you really didn't have popular cocktails. The 1800s, early 1800s, you start seeing the real first mentions of cocktails, and then the real... Uh, I guess revolution of cocktails is with Jerry Thomas. You know, he's coming out at this time. He's coming over from the States. He's bringing this cocktail culture, this saloon culture 
where instead of having beer and wine or sherries or just straight alcohols, you're having these elaborate cocktails. It's a show. It's interesting. It's fun. Um, you've got a lot of trade at this point, so you're getting a lot of interesting ingredients. You know, you have places like the Botanic Garden here where you have amazing botanicals from around the world which you have access to. You know, hundreds of years before that, to 100 years, you wouldn't have access to those kind of flavors out of season. We have greenhouses here that are growing all sorts of things. Some of the citrus that's been here for over 100 years, you know, you would have found at that time what you wouldn't have found before then. So it opens up this whole area of flavor and then culture. And those are the cocktails that were made at this time that we still enjoy today. That was the bedrock for kind of the cocktail movement that we're still going through. Was so, Jerry Thomas Scottish originally? No, he, I mean, he, he's, a, he's from New York, but then traveled around. He wrote the Bon Vivant's Companion, right, right. you know. Uh, he ended up in London. He was one of the better paid people of his time. You know, he was an amazing showman. He did the Blue Blazer where you're tossing flaming right, alcohol right. back and forth. You know, you have these um, amazing punches and cobblers with mint and fruit and shaved ice through them. Right. You know, ice is another interesting one. Before this time, I don't think you really... You didn't have the same access to ice. Ice is a luxury in the summer in a lot of places. You've got to bury it underground, you know, in, uh, in straw. So for this time, for these, these bars, it, this is this amazing extravagant experience of shaved ices and exotic fruits and then the booze that goes along with it. And the music, of course, as mm. well. I mean, the whole thing is kind of wonderful. Uh, one of the that runs together, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah. And the, it hasn't changed all that much with even the booze we enjoy. The alcohol that was enjoyed at that time, it's making these. It's not as if we've had some huge revolution since then and we're not drinking rum, gin, whiskey, brandy. and brandy. Yeah. You know, those were yeah. the ones. Um, vodka's come around, but I don't know if anyone in the cocktail industry is really heralding that as a major advancement in the world of uh, amazing cocktails. Yeah. It's, it's something that came around because we can make very high-proof alcohol, but... Really, the bedrock of all these cocktails were the same back then as they are today. I remember Dickens, Charles Dickens, I read somewhere, that went out to Boston in about 1842 and was blown away by the amount of uh, wonderful cocktails that were being made out there. Um, and he kind of, uh, there's a, there was a, what was one of the things, there's um, Captain Alexander, who was in, in America in 1933, was a, what's his, he wrote a really interesting book, but, but he was one of the few people that was actually, again, writing down a lot of the recipes, and there was the apple toddy mm -hmm. that was out there where you used to bake apples in wet brown paper in a fire, yeah. and then take the pulp out of the apples and put that into brandy with sugar and nutmeg. So that's a weird one. So when you think of what cocktails are, I mean, it's really, it, it's this kind of gray evolution of it goes back for a long time. What do you consider a cocktail? You know, is it beer and milk with the hot poker from the fire shoved in it? You know, <laughs> yeah. that was a cocktail at the time. You had these lodges, you know. It is. And yeah, absolutely. Then you have people like um, Dave Arnold in New York, who's, who's great. Um, he's the uh, amazing, you know, cocktail. He uses a lot of science for his cocktails. And they're recreating some of these old cocktails with, um, you know, extremely hot scientific equipment to then poke into your drinks to heat them, you know, or you have this takes on uh, classic cocktails made with scientific equipment, you know, as a reflection of how they would have been made 200 years ago. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what if, I mean, some of the other ones, you, you know. There's a Tim Madoodle, isn't there, that, uh, that was one of the Dickens' favorite cocktails, but nobody has a clue what that was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nobody wrote it's it so down. so good, nobody can remember <laughs> yeah, exactly. it. We should make one. Beer and, beer and eggs, that was another one, whipped up and then heated, right. you know, with some brandy. Wow, God, that sounds yeah. lovely. But the, the other amazing thing at this time, too, is you, you see, um, again, I always love how culture and booze influence each other. So, right, you know, 1800s is also when you get phloxia. Phlox, phlox, uh, phloxia? 
phylloxia. It's sorry, I'm pronounced your. It's the um, it's the the mites that took out the wine industry throughout Europe. Ah, phylloxia. Of course, yeah. So you have at that time. You know, all of a sudden, the wine industry takes a giant nosedive. And some people say it's, you know, over three-quarters of the, the grapes at this time are gone. So you don't have wine anymore. And what you have then is a sugar beet industry. Well, actually, it was the advent in France. It was the advent of uh, absinthe. Absinthe also came around, again, because you couldn't get wine. So they're making spirits saying, yeah. out of different things. You're not using brandy anymore. Yeah. Napoleon, because of the um, uh, embargo on British sugar starts really putting all this money and time into sugar beets, and they process them, and they develop stills that can then distill neutral spirit out of yep. sugar beets, which then makes absinthe and makes all these other spirits that we yep. like today. Yep. You know, So it's this really interesting tie-in between, again, culture, history, and how it influences spirits, and then how that influences what we're drinking today because of it. Amazing. That's wonderful. The history of the cocktail. That was great. Thank you so much, Corey and Tom, for bringing the booze to this episode. More guests are now arriving for this conversazione. We can hear them coming in, so we better go now. But we will look forward to talking with you again soon on a future episode. The Conversationalist is a podcast from the Constructing Scientific Communities Project, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. It is based at the Universities of Oxford and Leicester in partnership with the Natural History Museum, the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons, and the Royal Society. For our most recent podcasts, subscribe on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. Thank you.